Listen up, everybody. On Tuesday, March 19th, 4.15 Eastern Time, that's 1.15 here local in LA, I'll be hosting a webinar to discuss Cambria's two new ETFs, the Cambria Tactical Yield ETF, ticker TYLD, and the Cambria Micro and Small Cap Shareholder Yield ETF, ticker MYLD. Head over to Cambria's Twitter and LinkedIn pages to find the registration link. Once again, that's March 19th at 4.15 Eastern Time. Look forward to seeing you. Carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risk factors, charges, and expenses before investing. This and other information can be found by visiting our website at www.cambryfunds.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing or sending money. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of capital. The Cambry ETFs are distributed by Alps Distributors, Inc., member FINRA, FINRA. Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hey, hey, podcast listeners, it's almost summertime here in Los Angeles, and today we're going to have a fun show. We're welcoming back our guest from episode number 83. CEO and lead PM of Swan Global Investments and author of the new book, Investing Redefined, a Proven Investment Approach for a Changing World. Welcome back to the show, Randy Swan. Great to be back, Ben. So Randy, you spend part of the time in Durango, part of the time in Puerto Rico, and you're where right now? I'm in Dallas, Texas at the Malden Strategic Investment Conference. You know, I've never attended that one. I've always wanted to go. There's a pretty nice lineup this year. Are you... uh, are you attending? Are you chatting? How's the lineup so far? It's been great. I'm just attending this year. I'm friends with John, and I recommended John move down to Puerto Rico a couple of years ago. And actually, I think he moved down to Puerto Rico last fall. So I've got a new neighbor down there. But the conference has been really good. I think I was part of that dinner when we were chatting in a nice Italian restaurant, and I was getting to hear all of the details about Puerto Rico. We're actually having, it will have been published and live by the time this goes live, but a podcast we recorded another second time guest, Steve Glickman, talking about Opportunity Zones. And I think your entire island now is an Opportunity Zone there. Is that right? I believe so. It's going to be fun to watch how that develops in the coming years. I'm I'm nervously, cautiously optimistic on the Opportunity Zones anytime government sets some incentives into work, but hopefully uh, it has some good outcomes. Okay. All right, man. Well, in between the last time we had you on the pod, you went and wrote a book. I wish you'd have let me know because I would have talked you out of it. Book writing is like the most painful experience in my life. Talk to me. What was the inspiration behind putting pen to paper? What was your vision here? Well, it kind of goes back to we've been operating the defined risk strategy since July of 97. And really, as you do, we get to talk a lot about what we do at SWAN. And so participating in various conferences and interviews and media events. So I felt it was a good idea to kind of go back to the beginning of how and why I designed the strategy and what was the investment framework or landscape at that point in time, and just trying to kind of outline my kind of view of the world and why I think we're in a 
we're in a unique situation right now, given what's happened in the global economies over the last couple of decades. Well, so I got an advanced digital copy. I read it, enjoyed it. It's nice to always hear kind of origin story. I mean, you guys have one of the longest track records in public markets, but it's nice to see kind of the thinking behind it. And I want to walk through some, uh, and listeners, this book will either be live on Amazon or you can pre-order it depending on when when this gets published. But again, it's called Investing Redefined. So let's talk a little bit about the book. You know, in the beginning, you start pretty broad. You start with the general framework and you have a nice quote where you're talking about monetary theory, where you say, with the current bond and equity markets, investors have a dual dilemma. Do they flock to riskier investments for yield and sacrifice protection from the next bear market? Or do they stick to their more conservative investments, losing out on the monumental gains of this raging bull? Simply put, given the economic, political, social, and financial headwinds that we are facing, it is grossly unrealistic to expect the kind of returns we've seen from 60-40 for the last several decades going forward. Use that as a springboard jumping off point. What do you mean there? Well, I go back to probably the late 80s when the Federal Reserve started getting really active in the markets. If you remember the 87 crash, where I think it was the first situation where the Federal Reserve got really active trying to prevent maybe a worse economic downturn that we had. I think it even really stems on a bigger perspective or maybe a more higher level view of how democracies work, right? We start out as a republic and over time, democracies evolve and they get more power and they ultimately want more free stuff. They want it easy. They want things to be work out for them. Kind of the age of snowflakes and uh, participation trophies, I think, kind of got to the logical conclusion. But my theory has always been is that it's very hard to tell the populace not to spend more money. And so over the last several decades, I think we've kind of built up some debt problems. And I think it's happening not just in the U.S., but globally. I think there's now $250 trillion of debt globally. And I think that's obviously a pretty big number. And the question is, how is that going to play out? So that kind of goes back to the Federal Reserve getting more and more involved once they got that taste of that power. I think they've done more and more, become more active over the last couple of decades. And I think that helped spawn the phrase I always use from Greenspan in 96 about irrational exuberance, right? He made that comment in late 96. He, of course, helped create that bubble, but he was still off by about three and a half years. And that kind of goes back to, I always use the phrase smartest guys in the room. And even sometimes those guys, even though they have a lot of power, can't really control or get it right in terms of market timing. But, you know, that obviously spawned into after the uh, financial crisis, lowering rates even further, They've done more and more to kind of keep things low. And so that's obviously hurt the bond market, right? It's hurt savers, investors. Those people traditionally relied on fixed income to provide stability to their portfolio as well as consistent income has really been almost sacrificed to kind of keep the proverbial party going. And so now investors that are traditionally relied on a 60-40 traditional portfolio really have a situation where it becomes difficult for them to create a portfolio that can help them reach their goals and objectives. All right. So you got a couple of competing forces there, some the government macro force. Talk to me a little more about 60-40. You talk about some kind of range of potential market outcomes in the book. You talk a little bit about about Pascal's wager. But what's wrong with 60-40? I mean, that portfolio is done exceptionally well, not just the last 10 years where it's beaten pretty much everything, but over the decades. Why do you think it's not the best place going forward? I mean, I think it's two ways to look at it. One, and the question is, what's realistic returns 10 years going forward for the equity markets? And then the one that we all know for sure is the bond market, right? So if you've got traditional returns of 5 or 6% per year, historically, that's been pretty average. 
now you've got much lower returns. And so right there, you have a problem is what's the probability of a bond portfolio delivering five to 6% when the yield is much lower than that? Obviously, it's zero. It's zero probability that can deliver the historic returns. So although it's been having the wind at the back of the bond investor until recently, it's been a big boom, right? And going back to the early 80s when interest rates were so high. So I think it's benefited the investor, but that obviously has changed at this point. And that means that the investor has more likely than not either allocating a big percentage of their portfolio to something that's not going to generate very big returns or looking for other alternative investments, whether it's increasing their allocation equities or looking at true alternative investments to kind of build out their portfolio. The other issue, obviously, is the equity markets. Now, that gets a little more controversial from my perspective. Obviously, everyone has an opinion about what the markets are going to do going forward. That's something, obviously, I can't really obviously know exactly how that's going to play out. But what I do know statistically is I think we're in a historically an overvalued market at this point. So expectations going forward have to be somewhat muted for equities going forward. So taking those two things together, you've got probably very low expectations for portfolios going forward. And I think you see that across the whole spectrum of individual investors, pension plans across the board, trying to figure out a way to try to get the returns that are going to reach your goals and objectives. As you probably know, most pension plans have assumed rate of 7 8%. Is that 60-40 portfolio? Is that really set up going forward to deliver those types of returns? Notwithstanding that it's happened, obviously, over the last 10 years, there's been a huge bull market. I think the S&P is up over 425%. Since March of 09, that's just probably not realistic going forward. You make two pretty, I think, thoughtful points. And you have a table in the book that I think illustrates this nicely, and we can add it to the show links. But it's basically, you walk through the first problem, which is, say, 2% bond yields. Be generous, you can even say 3%, but somewhere in that range. And the problem with that on a nominal level is that for a 60-40 portfolio, even if equities did their historical, let's call it 9% return-ish or 10%, you still only get to about 6% because bond yields are low. So that already disadvantages the investor by the fact that your equities actually have to return something, I forget what the table said, maybe 12% or more based just on bond yields alone. Adding in the fact of overvaluation makes it problematic. And you touched on this, and I would love to even hear you elaborate more because you probably see a lot of this talking to institutions. People start to move out on the risk spectrum if they don't think equities are going to give them 12, which they probably won't. They start to move into alternatives. And you've seen this with everyone. And the big one right now is private equity, where everyone expects private equity to be the savior. When you talk to institutions, is that kind of the general feeling as you look around the world? No, I think that's exactly right. And I think the number of 12%, so a 2% yield requires a 12% return in equities to kind of get you to that 8%. So that is exactly what's going on right now. You know, you've got this kind of conflict right now. I almost call it tale of two cities in the sense that you've got a raging bull market over the last 10 years in equities, at least U.S. equities, and yet you have a lot of uneasiness or anger that the economy hasn't done as well. And I think that is obviously a result of the central banks and what they've done to kind of goose the market. And so, yes, absolutely. People are out there looking at everything and everything out there to try to figure out how they're going to meet their objectives, right? And so for the individual person, that means when they're going to retire, what kind of lifestyle they want to have when they retire. And obviously for a pension, it's looking at how they're going to provide benefits to the pensionees in that process. And so they're all struggling. In fact, I remember going to an alternative investment conference and came in a couple of years ago 
And that was really the focus of the internal meetings that I was invited to is you had all these big institutional investors and they all kind of looked around the room and said, we know there's no way we're going to be able to reach these goals that we've kind of set up. It's been set up for us given the market right now. And I think that's consistently been true. And I think that is a direct result of what the central banks have done globally to try to kind of keep things going. You have kind of two main problems. You have low bond yields. You have, and this is in the US, expensive equity market. I think research affiliates at the end of last year, they said that the chance that US equities would hit a historical average return that they have historically was 2%. But after the run-up this year, I imagine it's back down to 1%, which is what they said prior to, to, to Q4. So not great odds. But okay, let's say, let's say theoretically, magically, stocks and everything else did 12%. You got to that historical 8% that all the pension funds and endowments and people are expecting, although most people expect 10%. You have the problem of the path. And I think this is really thoughtful because you outlined this in the book a little bit with your personal experience. And I think so many investors benefit from hearing this, and it's hard to hear it and, and actually not having lived through it. But particularly the young set that hasn't been through a bear market. But walk me through the big challenge of a 60-40 is you still at some point lose two-thirds of your money because the portfolio is dominated by equity risk. So talk to me a little bit about the importance of investor psychology, the path that they take to realize those returns, and really big importance of avoiding large losses. Sure. Well, my experience is that most investors will tell you that they understand it's a long-term process and they have to weather the ups and downs of bull and bear markets. But in practical reality, that's not usually the way it works out. I mean, it's very difficult for anyone, quite frankly, to take a, you know, a third loss in their portfolio or, or greater. And of course, that's what happened roughly during the last bear market. I think a 60-40 portfolio just lost about 27% in 2008 alone. So that really potentially messes up your plan. And unfortunately, people use that kind of investment psychology at the wrong times that behavioral finance really kind of gets in the way of reaching your goals. And I'm sure a lot of people sold out in 2009 and probably didn't buy back till 2005 years later and get burned. And so really it kind of comes down to, we think one of the biggest things is really trying to educate your clients and try to get their perspective right and try to get them to understand how they're going to be able to reach their goals and objectives. And so that risk factor is something that it's hard for almost anyone to to overcome. But that's what successful investors really are, are the ones that kind of stay the course and have a long-term perspective and and not make decisions at the wrong time. And I like how you walk through it in the book where you kind of repeatedly make this impression. And it's funny because at this point in the cycle with a lot more risk-taking and a lot less aversion to risk, were there any particular memorable losses or market events that seared this into your brain? I mean, certainly for me, I could list probably 20 that reiterated the importance of how painful it is to to lose money. Is there anything that was the driving force behind why this became such a front and center belief for you? Absolutely. Well, I started investing at a pretty early age. I went through the 87 crash. I went through the 90-91 recession. In both those times, although the, the 87 crash was relatively brief, it still makes a big impact to lose 25 to 30% of your money in a matter of a couple of days or a week. And I think the same thing was true, I think, in 1991, although I think both those, the recession in 1991 was actually relatively minor at the end of the day, but it was still painful to go through that. So that's just, 
it kind of comes back to the industry has a kind of view that, hey, what you try to do is you go out there and you figure out, look, here's the investments that are available in a portfolio. And you have to be willing to accept a certain level of risk. And if you put that to work over a certain period of time, that's the way you make your return. And so it's really kind of based on modern portfolio theory, right? Which is diversification is really that to the main primary solution to handling market risk. And so that's kind of where we started to define risk strategy. It was really kind of based on that thesis is that that industry solution is part of the solution, but we don't think it's all the solution because you really can't manage market risk. You can't diversify away market risk. And so that requires some other type of something tool to your portfolio that really allows you to be able to create return streams that are more in line with what uh, I think investors really want. And that is more stable, smooth, consistent returns. I thought that was a good example in the book. I want to make two points here. The first being investors minus two, five, 10% days are all things that have happened in the past fairly regularly. Obviously, the bigger it gets, the more rare it is. But just imagine how crazy Twitter would go with we get back to minus 5, 10, even a 20% down day in stocks. My Lord, the people would lose their mind. But these things have happened in the past. And not having a plan for if they happen again seems rather foolish. The second point was that in the book, you make a great example that I think surprise not just a lot of individuals, but also institutions because the 2008 sort of environment, and it shouldn't have in my mind, because you had a belief that diversified portfolios, so let's call it stocks, bonds, global real estate commodities, you can't count on buy and hold markets to be uncorrelated. And you have a couple of great charts in the book that show correlation is is unstable and particularly unstable at times of crisis. I'm going to read a quote and then I'll let you start to riff on some things we can do about it. In the book, you talk about low-cost passive investing doesn't address investors' greatest fear, which is losing money. and only makes the bumpy roller coaster ride of the markets cheaper to buy. In effect, making risk less expensive may actually diminish investors' focus on risk, thereby replacing risk management with fee management. The main problem with buy and hold is that it doesn't address investor behavior during a bumpy or volatile ride. Too often, buy and hold becomes buy and fold. And going back to this 2008 example, I think that's really close to home for a lot of investors we talked to that kind of sold in 08 or 09 only to never get invested again. So talk to me a little bit about how a lot of these concepts of the lack of counting on correlation during bad times kind of led you to the genesis of y'all's flagship defined risk strategy, which you outline in the book. Sure. It was really based on that concept of correlation and diversification. Actually, I think most people don't want return streams to be correlated on the way up. They only want to be correlated on the way down. And obviously, I think it's almost just the exact reverse. Everything kind of seems to go up together, at least in the environment we're in right now. But then that also means everything most likely is going to go down together. So just that inability really to be able to define what type of risk you actually have in a portfolio. And I kind of go back to what we talked about in 2008, right? The 60-40 portfolio lost about 27%. I think that's a substantial portfolio. I'm not saying that's something that people historically haven't had to deal with. And maybe that's the right way to look at it. I think our view was acknowledging that you can't really quantify the risk understanding that the correlations will not last when you really want them to really be there for you means it puts you really focused on, is there a better mousetrap? Is there a better way to do it? Obviously, there's been a huge proliferation of tools over the last 20, 30 years, and that's obviously the ETFs 
and the listed options where I think we kind of come in on the strategy and, and it's really to take those two basic components of the low-cost tax-efficient ETFs and listed options market, which is gives the individual investor the ability to be able to kind of, I think, manage risk in a much more definable way. It really was the genesis of the strategy. Having gone through some of those bear markets, even though I always said, yes, I'm a long-term investor, it's still not fun to go through that. So really it was that, I think, going back to the late 90s of the rational exuberance, right? Watching, I was fortunate enough to benefit from the bull markets in the 80s and the early 90s, mid 90s. And then at some point you say, this doesn't really make any sense anymore where people are quitting their jobs to trade stocks for a living. And so that was obviously a very worrisome sign. I think that in combination of, of kind of the increasing role of the central banks, and I kind of make the point also about uh, my view of the central banks historically, and I go back to someone like Greenspan is telling the politicians on a regular basis, you guys need to stop promising free bread and circuses to the populace. You need to stop running up debt. This is terrible. This is going to be bad in the long run, but we're going to enable you to keep doing it. And we're going to make it easier for you to keep doing it. And we're going to do other things because we're going to try to save the day. I mean, and that's my assessment of, of how things kind of built up in the late 90s, which is an ever increasing amount of debt. And obviously it's continued today. And that really said, it kind of put me in a position to say, Gosh, if I'm a long-term investor, I understand how markets work, but something bigger is happening than just a normal business cycle right now. This is building up to be something, I think, a debt bubble. And here you've got the smartest guy in the room, Alan Greenspan, saying that I've created this bubble myself. And what are you going to do about it? Are you going to sell everything and go to cash? Or are you going to stay the course and just say, I know it's going to be painful at some point, but I'm going to keep doing it. And so that really was the genesis of the defined risk strategy to really try to structure those returns and really protect to the downside. So for the listeners who aren't familiar, who didn't listen to episode 83, shame on you, but walk me through the general concept of how this works. So the most fundamental view of the defined risk strategy is we kind of take some basic principles of hey, you should invest in things that are tax efficient, low cost. We like the concepts of equities, but we don't like the volatility involved with equities, right? We like the long-term returns. And so we also don't believe in market timing or even stock selection, right? I think you've done a lot of research, Meb, about how managers do relative to the benchmarks. And so kind of starting from that concept of not believing in market timing or stock selection, using the new tools, right, where ETS and listed options is really create a strategy to be able to do that. And so what we do is, we always say we're fundamentally agnostic as to the underlying, and that means the underlying equity portfolio. And so we'll take an equity portfolio. In our example, the S&P 500 is our kind of flagship strategy that we started in 97. And we invest roughly about 90% in the long ETFs, whether that's through SPY, which is the original ETF, or the select sector spiders. But we also do the exact same strategy on emerging markets, foreign developed U.S. small cap. So we invest about roughly 90% of the underlying portfolio in the ETFs. It's a buy and hold. Then we invest in long dated put options to be able to hedge out most of that market risk. What I try to tell people about the options is kind of goes back to the concept of you have to decide what you want to protect and what you have to let go. And I think we always go back to we're trying to protect against large bear markets, large losses in investors portfolio, not necessarily market corrections which usually takes several months to recover from. So on a broad level, it's taking equity position, it's hedging it with long dated options, and it's the third component is selling short dated options to try to generate income to help pay for the cost of the hedge in some market conditions. 
So listeners, let's talk a little bit about that because there's some key distinctions I think you made that are important. The first listener takeaway probably is, hey, okay, well, if you just had the S&P, obviously there's no free lunch. So if you just buy a bunch of puts, that's going to come at a cost. And so I imagine the first question from listeners would be, how much is that costing me to own that sort of insurance? And then the second would be, what's the actual, because you disclose this in the book, so which is pretty amazing. What's the actual process? When you say long-term, what does that mean? Are you updating these once a week? Like, How does the general flow work? And kind of conceptually, why does it work in a world where mostly markets are efficient? Absolutely. Well, I think we start off from the concept, I think everyone would agree, if you could come up with a cost-effective way to hedge your portfolio, who wouldn't want to do it? It would allow you to invest more in equities. So I think the fundamental question is, can you do it cost-effectively? And we think the answer is yes. But how we do that, I guess, is part of the process we'll get into in a minute. But fundamentally, what I would say at the end of the day is, is it depends on how much it costs depends on what the normal this is called bull market cycle. And that includes a bull market and a bear market, right? So we started the strategy in 97. If you kind of break our track record up into groups, you had a bull market and a bear market from 97 to 2002. And then you had another bull market from 2003. And then obviously the 2007 to 2009 sell-off. And so the reality is those first two cycles, we actually had the put options actually become a profit center. They actually made you money. And obviously, that's because you had larger than average bear markets. And so fundamentally, the first concept I just say is depending on the up move and the down move determines whether or not you can make money, even in an efficient market. So put options are priced on what people's expectations of what the market could do over that time frame. So if you're typically hedging your portfolio in a time period where people don't think that the proverbial storm is going to come, then obviously it's cheaper. And if you're buying insurance in a market environment, they think that the storm is going to come, it's going to cost you a little more money. Fundamentally, we believe that it's a worthwhile process because it really allows clients to stay invested for the long haul. So we always use the phrase, always invested, always hedged. And that takes away the market timing aspect of that. And so you asked about the length of time of the options. So what we're pretty fairly open about in our strategy is that and we are very unique in this respect, is that we do hedge with long-dated options. And so the concept of that comes down to if you're strategic in nature and how you use options, meaning we're always going to be invested, always be hedged, you've got to come up with a cost-effective way to hedge. It's not a tactical timing tool to say, hey, I think the market's going to top out this quarter. I'm going to hedge for the next six months to a year. We think that's actually pretty difficult to do, if not impossible. Therefore, we have to be committed long-term to come up with a cost-effective way to hedge. So long-dated options give you two benefits over short-dated options. One of those is that the time decay that occurs in a long-dated option, if you don't hold it to expiration, is actually much lower than trying to buy put options on, a, let's say, a 90-day basis, right, every quarter. The second benefit of using long-dated options, and you think about it, and said, even if you bought a put option and you had the foresight in, let's say, July 1st of 2008, say, I think we're going to lose a substantial amount of money in the markets over the next six to nine months. Let's say you were to go out and buy an option that expired at the end of the quarter in September. And so the put option did what it was supposed to do. It protected you on the down movement in the market. But guess what? You've now got to insure your portfolio starting in October. And so it doesn't matter how much money you made on those put options when the market went down in the third quarter, you were now going to have to go out in the market and pay up. And that means the market would be pricing that volatility into the market. They would be pricing that risk. 
So you'd actually have to go out and buy the proverbial insurance portfolio insurance when the market's in chaos. So it becomes almost cost prohibitive to buy short-term insurance when the market's doing what it did in 2008. That's another reason why we're committed to the long-dated options. And so we typically do is buy them roughly around two years to expiration and hold them about one, and we trade them up for another two-year option. So we're always rolling. And so that means that when that volatility event occurs, we're able to get paid for the options that were long that we hold on the portfolio when we're simultaneously buying new options. So that prevents us from getting stuck in a situation where we really can't insure our portfolio. Okay, there's two parts I want to ask. One is you talk about, I assume you don't just buy and hold the equities, buy a bunch of leap puts. And by the way, talk a little bit about you doing in the money, out of the money. And then second is, do you just buy a bunch of puts, Jan 1, go take a nap till uh, New Year's Eve the next year? Or do you have to constantly monitor those and kind of what you're thinking around how, how to think about adjusting that portfolio? So I think you asked two points. The first one is how do we actually manage the put options? And so effectively what we're trying to do in the portfolio is take a arbitrary length of time and we're going to say a year and say, set that client's expectations for that year and say, look, here's how much risk you're going to have in the portfolio for the hedged equity component of the strategy. And so we'll typically do that in the high single digits over a, over a year basis. And so that kind of sets the client's expectations. Say if the market drops 20, 30, 40%, you should have something in the high single digits. And so that really goes to probably something at the money or very close to the money. And obviously the further, to the extent you even go in the money, that obviously is going to cost you more, but it's going to give you more downside protection. So that's really, you know, if you were doing this on an individual basis, which is part of our overlay strategy that we customize for larger portfolios, you can have that kind of interaction and say, hey, I want more protection or less protection. In fact, one of our five mutual funds is a more growth-oriented fund that has less insurance in the portfolio. And so that just comes back to people's preference about whether they want to be more aggressive or not aggressive. But getting back to the management of the intra-year trades is really what we're hoping for during a bear market is to be able to take advantage of that market weakness by selling those deep-in-the-money put options. And so I'll go through 08 and 09 is the actual examples of what we went through and how we managed those portfolios. So I know most people remember that the S&P was around 1450 to start 2008. We had a pretty big sell-off starting in the third quarter. We, at one point on October 8th, I think the market was down roughly 25% for the year. We sold those put options that were deep in the money at that point, re-hedged the portfolio. And that means buying another put option that's close to at the money and using that excess cash to buy more shares. And so how do you generate excess cash? An option that's deep in the money is going to be worth more than an at-the-money option. And so that differential gives us cash. So this strategy actually generates cash during bear markets to really be able to add to your underlying equity portfolio. So our clients got roughly 40% more shares during the sell-off in 2008. And so the first question people ask me is, well, how did you pick that point? We picked the point not necessarily based on time. It's really based on market movement. So it's really not to your advantage to try to hedge or re-hedge the portfolio every 5% sell-off or even 10% sell-off. We're really looking for more of the 20 to 25% range. And the reason why that is, is that roughly at the money option, when it goes 20% in the money, is where those put options are really paying off almost virtually one for one for the decline in the equity. And so really trying to bring that 90-10 split, 90% equity, 10% put options, that now let's say it becomes 60-40, 
back to that 90-10. And so that's a decision that we've made to try to take advantage of that, that sell-off. Of course, that was not the low in the market. Still had the protection in place, albeit we had to pay another deductible effectively by rehedging the portfolio, but getting the new shares for long hauls is something that's benefited us. And then roll forward to March of 09. Once again, market had sold off substantially from the most recent rehedge. We bought um, new put options, sold the old in-the-money options, and had a substantial number of shares for our clients in March of 09. Now, of course, we all know that was low in the market. That wasn't necessarily a timing call by Swan, but our kind of rules dictated that a 20 to 25% sell-off from the most recent rehedge is really kind of what we're looking for to take advantage of that rehedge process. Now, everything else being equal, we're trying to rehedge the portfolio. We really want portfolio to kind of run for the year up or down and then establish a position. And then as the market moves up towards the end of the year, then we're going to want to lock in as many of those gains as possible. So our rehedging process on the upside is much more stringent because statistically speaking, and I'll use last quarter as a good example, I think that was the first year out of 70 years where the market was up 10% or more during the first three quarters and actually ended up being down for the years. Before last year, you'd be zero for 70 to rehedge. So we really try to avoid um, trying to rehedge on up years during the market because the more you rehedge, the more flat your portfolio becomes. In other words, you become more delta neutral, which means that for every dollar the market goes up, you're going to make less money than if it was the market has moved away from your strike price of your options. So we try to avoid a lot of rehedging on the upside during the year. But uh, it is an active process. It's also trying to figure out where we're going to get the most bang for the buck in terms of strike prices and managing that rehedge process on an annual basis. Talk to me about the third leg. So you have the long equity, you have the long dated puts. Talk to me a little bit about how to think about some of this income generation from selling shorter term options, whether to be seen as reducing the cost or however you want to frame it. How does that play into this strategy and, and how do you think about constructing that leg of the stool as well? Absolutely. Well, the concept of selling short-term options is something that is very popular in the markets nowadays. We fundamentally, as I mentioned earlier, believe that you should head using long-dated options. And if you understand why we do that, we talked about the rate of decay as an option goes towards expiration is exponential. That means an option that's 90 days expiration is going to decay at a much quicker rate than something that's, let's say, a year out. So, if I told you I didn't want to hedge using long-dated options, that means I probably want to sell short-dated options due to that rapid time decay. So we're trying to take advantage of what is called the risk premium in the options market. And that means that the market kind of pays you on average for taking that risk. And what that means is, is that the implied volatility, which is one of the components of the option pricing model, what the market perceives to be the volatility expectations going forward on average, is higher than what's actually ultimately realized in the market. And so that spread allows option sellers to make money. And now, of course, that doesn't happen every single month, every quarter, but on average, that's what has been held up to the last several decades in the options market. So that's the first step of our option income component. Our second step is that's where we do really most of our active management. And what that really means is kind of determining on the front end how we're going to manage those options. And so what we're really trying to do is avoid large losses. So just like a put option is going to protect you on the way down, if you're using it to hedge your portfolio, we sell short-dated options to try to generate income. And so what we have to do is actively manage those. That means that the market makes a substantial move down we may have to take off that position or make adjustments to 
try to maintain the integrity of the put option that we're long to protect the portfolio. So we're actively managed on those type of income trades. Now, some people ask me, well, why would you want to do that? It seems like you're kind of undoing it. But you stick to a disciplined process of selling options on a monthly basis. It makes a lot of sense to be able to generate income. And so really at the end of the day, I think I mentioned earlier in the podcast that depending on the size of the bull and bear market, you may get a put option that actually makes you money over that full market cycle. But let's assume it doesn't for a second. Being able to consistently generate income in your portfolio really allows you to have a less of a loss that we had like in 2008. I think that our equity portfolio or hedged equity portfolio would have lost about 10% in 2008, but we made about 5% income. So our net loss in 2008 was about 4.5%. And vice versa, on the other side or the flip side is if you have an up market and you're able to generate income, then you're going to have a higher upside capture. And that's really kind of the game at the end of the day is trying to generate a strategy that has the right combination of upside and downside market capture that allows you to to outperform the market, but also just as important as to give the investor a better experience and really prevent them from making bad decisions at the worst time. All right. So the people listening, I got another two-part question. The first is, when can investors, broadly speaking, expect this? I mean, you mentioned down five in 2008. I think every person on the planet would have taken that for equities. When can you expect this strategy to shine and when can you expect it to struggle? Are there particular markets where the DRS does exceptionally well and what are the most challenging ones to? Well, we shine obviously during bear markets because we should significantly outperform the underlying market. We should do reasonably good in a kind of a flat to gently rising market, but know that we're not going to get 100% of the upside. And I think what I said, go back to that combination of the upside and downside really is what determines whether or not you outperform the market. More on a different way to look at it is I always tell people, when you look at our hedged equity, it's almost kind of very similar to a straddle in the sense that if you ask me right now, if I could look out three years, would I want the market to be down 60% or up 60%? I probably would choose down 60% because of our ability to get additional shares. That sounds a little weird, even though we're long equity to say that. So what we really want on the hedged equity component of strategy is really the market to move up a lot or down a lot. Because we're able to lock in those gains by using higher, higher strike prices on the put options. I think in March of 09, we were using 675 puts, and now we're using 2,800, 2,900 puts. And that means that a lot of those gains that we've made over the last decade have been locked in. So on the hedged equity portion, we want big market that moves up or down. On the income trades, we want markets to stay within a normal defined range over, let's say, a a monthly period. And, And why is that? And that goes to what makes us have the most difficult time is when you have high levels of volatility in very short periods of time like the flash crash, like the downgrade of the U.S. debt, things like 9-11, right? Those are all events that have occurred since we've been operating the strategy. And so why is that? Because obviously we should be losing money on those option income trades because we are going to have to take off those positions and most likely incur losses. And so that's really the worst type of environment. And I think it's not even just going down, it's going up and down. And I can use um, last January, February of 2018 as a good example If you remember in January, I think the market went up 7% in the first three weeks of January and then proceeded to lose it all and then some. Those types of whipsaw markets, option income strategy, makes it very difficult to generate income. In fact, we would lose money in those types of environments. So as an investor thinks about this strategy, everyone, many people, I shouldn't say everyone, loves to place their investments into buckets. And what is the traditional way you see advisors or institutions or individuals 
thinking about a strategy like this, is it an equity replacement? Is it a bond replacement? Do they put it in satellite? How do they kind of think about this traditionally and how should they? I'll answer the first how should they and how I designed the strategy in the first place when I designed it back in the late 90s is really to kind of replace a 60-40 portfolio. If you think about that, we went back to what was kind of the light bulb idea was I don't like the fact that I have to go through and lose a third of my money every five years. I also don't like the not being able to count on the correlations working in the right way. So fundamentally, if you took this one strategy on the S&P 500, it would be a good way to replace your portfolio. Now, obviously, most of the people we're dealing with, that's, that they're not going to go 100% on any one investment or any one strategy. And that's where it goes to, I think, how we're used. I think we're really used across the board. To me, my view is, is that if you have hedged equity as part of your portfolio, really allows you to invest more in equities. And so take that 60-40 portfolio. Let's say you wanted to leave the 60 in equities and you wanted to say, hey, I don't really like the low yield environment we're in right now. Let's take the 40%, right? Let's take the 40%, create a diversified portfolio of hedged equity. You're going to have, we think, a much better return stream than what you have going forward on that equity. So I think we've been used all across the board, but I would say predominantly we give clients an ability to add additional equities to their portfolio without substantial amount of risk. I think that's really where we use mostly. What So you mentioned earlier in the podcast and in the book as well, that this general philosophy can also apply to other markets. So talk a little bit about how you think about this overlay or however you want to describe it, the DRS as applied to say international stocks, or is it something that can be thoughtful on real assets like REITs and commodities, or even bonds, or a portfolio as a whole. How do you think about this outside of just U.S. stocks? Well, we do apply the DRS to all those different asset classes. So we have four mutual funds for the four equity markets I mentioned, U.S. large cap, small cap, foreign developed emerging markets. We also do it on the TLT as well as GLD. So we have some commodities and and some bonds in there too. I always go back to it really allows people to get into something like emerging markets where we think a lot of potential exists long-term, but the volatility in the emerging markets is just pretty ridiculous in terms of level of volatility. So, so at the end of the day, yes, that's kind of the next step for Swan as we build out our product mix is really to be able to give clients the ability to kind of build their own portfolios on a risk-managed basis to be able to kind of choose the proportion of different equity markets and different things like gold and stuff like that and kind of build their own portfolio, but say, hey, I want this on a hedge basis. And so we think that the uh, tremendous amount of back testing and modeling and stuff like that and all these different asset classes, and it comes back consistently with a similar result. And so we think at the end of the day, this is a much better way to manage this, not only just normal market ebbs and flows of business cycles, but obviously something that we've been building to something much bigger, we think, in terms of the debt bubble that's been building for the last decade or so that we think is ultimately going to come to resolution at some point, just not knowing when. And it really allows you to kind of stay in the game without trying to take on too much risk. And I think you alluded to the whole kind of concept of Pascal's wager earlier. And that, that's a concept we kind of come back to this whole thing is we don't really know exactly how this is going to unfold. We suspect it's going to be get painful at some point for, for, for most everyone. But you have to take into account all these different market situations into your long-term portfolio. And if there's a probability, even if it may be remote, that there's going to be some massively catastrophic event where the market goes down 60, 70, 80%, 
then having these type of strategies in your portfolio, we think is going to provide a lot of value. And if it doesn't occur, which is obviously also possible, the question is, given the low yield environment we're in right now, is what are reasonable expectations for a portfolio going forward? And I think they're in the low single digits at this point. And I don't necessarily think it's going to be average exactly three or 4% a year, but I'm just saying that with all those different potential outcomes, having something that takes into account all the different outcomes, I think makes a lot of sense. Fast forward to 2022, the headlines, Swan Global launches defined risk strategy on cryptocurrency portfolio. (laughs) It would be fun to see. Randy, all right, so let's take a look forward to the future. You got your binoculars, crystal ball. What's going on in Swan Labs? What else are you guys thinking about? It could be anything. It can be thinking about portfolio ideas. It could be thinking about anything you're particularly excited about when it comes to markets, education. What's on your brain these days otherwise? Well, I think the biggest opportunity that Swan has going forward is really the customization aspect of our strategy. So we kind of go back to, hey, apply the same strategy from S&P, which has been our historical track record to the different asset classes we've already talked about, but really allow clients to come in, bring in their existing portfolios, let us do customization. That means create, do correlation analysis for those individual portfolios, decide, okay, this is the way we would create a hedge for that portfolio. The different risk levels I mentioned, our growth fund, you know, we wanted a growth fund because obviously when you're in a 10-year bull market, Some people say that I want more upside. I want more upside. Actually, I think our real reason for the growth strategy was not necessarily during the bull market was or after the bear market. We want people to be able to, if they want more upside after the next bear market, they'll have more upside. So I think it's the customization in terms of what types of risk levels, different types of portfolios is really, I think, where we're at right now. And I think really working with the individual advisor on a consulting basis to help their practice to really kind of grow out. You know, one of the problems that advisors have nowadays is just the differentiation that they really provide. If everyone's kind of moving towards this kind of robo-advisor type deal where everyone places all the value on the fees, which I think are very important, obviously, but also coming up with solutions that differentiate themselves being other advisors. I think that's particularly smart on the advisor side. I mean, I think a lot of people still want to be involved in the actual running of the portfolios, but don't necessarily want to be the one that designs the car. So I think that's a, that's a pretty thoughtful idea and and the ability to customize it too. Everybody's got their own spin on things. So being able to, to add that sort of overlay, I think is thoughtful. Randy, it's been a blast today. Where can people find more information on what you guys are up to, what you're writing about, all your funds, all that good stuff? Our website, swanglobalinvestments.com. We have a lot of extensive library of blogs and white papers. We do have a tremendous amount of research. That's not just necessarily about our strategy in general, but just the general problems that we have in the markets and solutions and stuff like that. We also do a quarterly kind of investment manager, portfolio managers call. And as you already mentioned, the book that's coming out. So yeah, just go to our website. We do have lots of many conferences around the country. I think we've already had one in Chicago this year, Houston and Dallas. I think we're doing one in LA and San Francisco. So anyone interested in going to some of those types of conferences can reach out to us and we'll let you know where we'll be. 
Well, good. When you guys are in LA, certainly reach out and hopefully I can join and listen as well. Randy, thanks so much for taking the time today and tell John and everyone else in Texas hello. Sounds good. I will. Listeners, check out Randy's book, Investing Redefined, a proven approach for a changing world on Amazon. Everywhere else, good books are sold. We can find the show notes. We'll post links to Swan Global and a lot of the blogs, everything else we talked about today on mebfaber.com forward slash podcast, as well as the archives, over 150 shows. Please leave us a review, shoot us an email, let us know what you think, feedback at themebfavorshow.com. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Welcome to the Pants Cast, brought to you by Lululemon, a show about all things pants. My guest is Matt James, former NCAA player and Lululemon ABC pant enthusiast. Hi, great to be here. Matt, tell us all about those ABC pants. The comfort? They're like the pants I put on when I don't want to wear pants. Versatility? You could wear these pants to a wedding, but you could also wear these to a cookout. And what about style? They're like if casual and cool had a baby. Well, it's clear why you're an ABC enthusiast. Pleasure having you and your pants on the show. Thanks for having us. Find the shockingly comfortable ABC pants at lululemon.com. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the deal. It go down. It go down in the deal. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER.